Well, first of all, I just want to thank those who came early and helped set up and get this place together. Um, you know, Gary was there early, unloading and helping set up. Ray Alvarenga helping and getting this screen together. Doug Skirma was was wrestling with this screen. Ray Skirma as well was was making the door open. We couldn't figure it out. It takes a fireman to open a door, realize. You just push it harder. That's all it was. Um, Jasmine and Khalil were here early setting up the sound. Who else? I'm trying to... Stefan here early getting the music together. Uh, Abe was here setting up, setting up the chairs. So I really appreciate that, guys. That was very, uh, very helpful. Pardon? And Matilda, and Matilda, setting up the, the children's area. Well, praise God. Uh, I'm a little tinny, um, Khalil. If you want to turn the bass up, maybe the treble down. It is appropriate that today, um, this is a new era, a new journey in our church, and I'm so excited to start a new sermon series. Um, and what better thing to do than to think for the next few months, perhaps a year or more, about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And so we are going to, for the next while, be studying the Gospel of Matthew. And I invite you to turn there today. Now, I realize I'm speaking to a, a congregation that knows their Bible for the most part. But if someone asked you, what is Christianity? We would be wrong to answer that it is a set of propositions about the world. Um, we would be wrong to say that it's a message of morality. Uh, we would be wrong to pose it as an invitation of, of spirituality abstractly speaking. Christianity is about Christ. It's about a person, the Jesus Christ, who he is, what he accomplished, and therefore what's required of us. The message of the gospel is that the unique son of God is Jesus Christ, and he made the realm of God's kingdom available uh, to be entered now that's the kingdom of god you can enter the realm of god's eternal rule and reign now that's the kingdom offering to humanity and jesus taught that he himself is the door to that kingdom and we enter through him by faith in who he is and what he accomplished and that living in this kingdom requires faith and obedience to Jesus Christ, who himself is the way, whose life and teachings perfectly reflect the Father. And the message furthermore is that the, that death, the death of Christ is the means by which the door is opened for the kingdom to be entered into by sinners. And that through his resurrection life, those who have faith in him are united to that very life and seated with him in heavenly places even now. 
So these are the truths to which I would like to call your attention for the next few months or year or so as we study the Gospel of Matthew. Now, Matthew is a, is a biography of Jesus. That's what the Gospels are, biographies of Jesus Christ. So we're going to answer questions like, who is Jesus? Uh, what did he accomplish precisely? And what does he require of those who have faith in him? So this is a great place. If you have somebody who is in your family or in your life who is, is vague about the Christian message, this would be a great time to invite them to service because I'm going to be te- teaching and talking about Jesus Christ. So we're going to be thinking about who he is, what he requires, his death and his resurrection, it would be a perfect entryway for somebody who is unsure about the gospel or who Jesus is. So Matthew's a theological biography of Jesus Christ. Um, It is the first book in the New Testament, and therefore it's the bridge, the bridge from the Old Testament to the New Testament, and that was done intentionally by those who organized the canon. Because more than any other gospel... The Gospel of Matthew highlights how Jesus is the fulfillment and climax of the Old Testament hope. And so I want to begin by considering the genealogy of Matthew in verses 1 through 17 of chapter 1, if you'd read with me. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. And Isaac, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham. And Jotham, the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. And Manasseh, the father of Amos. And Amos, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah. And his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. And Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud. And Abiud, the father of Eliakim. And Eliakim, the father of Azor. And Azor, the father of Zadok. And Zadok, the father of Achim. And Achim, the father of Eliud. And Eliud, the father of Eleazar. And Eleazar, the father of Matan. And Matan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. 
And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. Now, a list of names like that might be a a painful way to start a biography, you think. I mean, that doesn't exactly grip somebody to, to trot out dozens of names like that. But actually, this, by, this genealogy is just bristling with meaning and depth and theology. Um, and I hope to show that Jesus is shown to the readers of this biography as the fulfillment of the history and hope of the Jewish people and therefore the world. Now, discipleship... <laughs> Discipleship means actually locating yourself within the narrative of the story of God's people. It starts there. It means locating yourself within the history of redemption. And as we study this gospel, we need to do actually the spiritual work of self-consciously locating ourselves in the story of Jesus Christ. So I want to ask two questions today and answer them. Number one, who is Jesus? Second of all, what kind of savior is he? Who is Jesus, first of all? Well, he's, he's referred to as, first, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The son of Abraham shows that he is biologically Jewish. There's nothing, there's nothing you might say interesting about that. He's biologically Jewish. Abraham, as you know, was chosen by God specifically to be the father of the Jewish people. Genesis 12. In you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And Genesis 18, after Abraham does follow through and being willing to sacrifice his only son, the one whom he loves, God ratified that promise. And said, in your offspring will all the nations of the earth be blessed, Abraham. So Israel's scriptures actually show that it is through this family that God had chosen to deal with the problems of creation. Through the family and through eventually the nation of Israel, it would, that would be how God deals with the problems of creation. So, Jesus is biologically Jewish, included in the chosen and covenant people of God. Second of all, he's a son of David. And that shows that he's not just of Jewish descent, of Jewish descent, he's actually of royal descent. God specifically chose, if you remember, David to be the king of Israel and promised David that his kingdom would last forever. So Jesus is the son of David, a descendant of God's ordained kings, and he's the son of Abraham, therefore, and he is biologically Jewish. Now, that's how you could read it. He's a, son, he's a son of Abraham, so he's Jewish. He's a son of David, so he's, he's uh, related to the kings. But I want to see, not, I don't want to just look at the words. I want you to see through the words for a minute. There is far more implied here than that Jesus is Jewish and related to David. Old scripture not only Old Testament scripture not only records the life of Abraham and the life of David, it actually records 
anticipation of what would happen from their line. What did God promise again to Abraham? In your offspring will all the nations of the earth be blessed. And we see that be hearkening back to Genesis 3.15. Now some of you know where I'm going with this. Genesis 3.15 is where God told Eve that the offspring of Eve would crush the head of the serpent. So you see the head of the serpent being crushed by an offspring of Eve, and then you see Abraham being promised that his offspring would bless all the nations. Very interestingly, fast-forwarding thousands of years to the New Covenant, we see the Apostle Paul identifying Jesus Christ as the offspring through whom all the nations would be blessed. Jesus himself is that offspring. And so you can, you can look there in Genesis or Galatians 3.16. He's saying, he says that God's promise to Israel was not to offsprings, not to all of Israel, but rather in light of Jesus Christ, we see that the promise in, Gal- in Genesis 12.3 and Genesis 18 was the offspring of Jesus Christ is the fulfillment. He is the highest fulfillment of that promise. He is the offspring through whom all the nations of the earth would be, would be blessed. Second of all, so you see, you see prophecy. You see anticipation in the words, son of Abraham. Not only that, son of David, is that recalls shadowy anticipations of who would be born from David. If you turn with me to uh, Isaiah 11, which John read earlier. Isaiah 11 is a prophecy about a forest being cut down and felled completely. Imagine a forest that's been entirely cut down and burned by the wrath of God because of the disobedience and sin of his people. And there is no green in this forest. Nothing lives in this forest. The Lord would utterly cut them down. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 11, there is a prophecy though. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. You ever see a shoot growing out of a stump before? A little green growing out of a stump? I have. My neighbor cut down his tree. I don't know why he, cut, he keeps cutting down all his trees, but he does. Cut down his tree, and there's a little shoot growing out of almost the middle of the stump. Oh, there was. I don't know if you've seen that, but... The prophecy is that there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Who is Jesse? Who, say it loud. David's father. The, the King David's father. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So imagine this felled forest, no life, and yet a stump, a shoot grows up from one of the dead stumps. 
And we see, as John read in the rest of the passage, that the Spirit of the Lord rests upon this shoot. And he is going to be the one that ushers in God's new creation. You could go to another prophecy in Jeremiah 23, 5. It says, I will raise up from David a righteous branch. So there's this shoot that grows up, a branch that grows up. And this is all coming from the line of David. So this shows that the history and expectations of Israel have finally arrived in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the anticipation of the prophets, Matthew is saying. He is the hope of Israel. He is the promise of God who would usher in God's reign on earth, where the wolf will lay down with the lamb and the glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. So Jesus is the fulfillment of that anticipation. Now we live in an already not yet kingdom. It's inaugurated, it's here, but it's not fully consummated. So when you read about the kingdom of God in scripture, understand that there's an already aspect and a not yet aspect to the kingdom of God. Getting back to the genealogy. So he's son of Abraham, son of David, which could just be read as a Jewish man in the line of a king, but actually he is the offspring and he is the branch that the prophets prophesied about many centuries before. Not only is he son of Abraham, son of David, he is the Christ. And that actually just reinforces the point that Jesus is the history and hope of Israel incarnate. Now, I know a lot of you know that during Jesus' time, the expectation of Jews was national liberation. Israel was, was a people constantly in exile. That's what the ESV means by deportation. Deportation means they were removed from their land by a hostile army. And you can read about that in the prophets, in the historical books. They were taken captive by Babylon in 586 BC. And they lament that they couldn't they can't sing the songs about Jerusalem again because they don't they're not in their homeland and they were taken off to Babylon and that's where the story of Daniel kind of picks up in 586 BC then after years of being under Babylonian rule the people of Israel who longed to be reestablished in their land were under Persian dominance then years after being, even though they came back to their homeland, they were under the thumb and the power and the taxation and the rule of Persia. Then after many years, Alexander the Great conquered the whole known world and conquered Persia and Alexander the Great and the Greeks. Oh, there is lamenting in the other room. <laughs> that, is, that is okay. I, I love to hear crying babies. It means we have a good, healthy church. But... Persia took over, then the Greeks took over the Jews, and now at the time of Jesus, it was the Romans. And the king of Israel in, in the, during the time of Jesus was Herod, who was a puppet king instituted by the Romans, and Israel was taxed by the Romans, and the priesthood was obtained by dis diplomacy through the Romans, 
and they were under the thumb of foreign powers, never able to fully reestablish themselves as the people of God. So Israel was not technically in exile away from their homeland, but they were under house arrest. It's like they were in their home, but they had puppet kings set up by foreign powers. They were taxed by foreign powers. They were ruled by foreign powers. And so when Messiah came, he was expected to destroy the enemies of Israel. He was expected to be the one who would conquer the Romans and reestablish Israel as the people of God who are free to worship on Mount Zion again. And by saying that Jesus is the Christ means that he is the one who would do this. However, however, all of that expectation about Jesus Christ and the liberation of Israel would be far greater, far greater than Israel initially anticipated because he would not just liberate Israel from bondage to the Romans. He would liberate Israel from their sins. Look in verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. A sin unto death and eternal damnation is a far greater liberation. Being liberated from that is far greater than being liberated from hostile foreign powers. So, All the hopes, all the expectations of Israel have converged and now finally come to fruition in Jesus Christ. So you get that? That's son of Abraham, son of David, Christ. Not only that, but we see that there's a new chapter in Israel's history. And I want to show you something amazing in the first words of the Gospel of Matthew. It says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. I know you don't remember this because a long time ago, but when we when I preached through Genesis, there's something called the Toledot phrases, which are like chapter markers for the book of Genesis. And the Toledot phrases are translated in English as these are the generations of. In Genesis 2:4, It reads, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. In Genesis 5.1, these are the generations of Adam. And actually, that's where the book of Genesis gets its name. Because, follow me now, now, when Alexander the Great took over, he changed the language of the nations that he conquered. From whatever they were speaking to Greek. And so Jews who had an Old Testament Bible were forgetting how to read the Hebrew as as generation passed from generation. And so what they had to do in order to maintain biblical literacy was translate their Hebrew scriptures into Greek. Who knows what that book is called? The Old Testament Greek, the Septuagint. Very good. So the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And the Septuagint says in Genesis 2-4, Biblios Genosios, the book of the genealogy, or these are the generations of the heavens of the earth. The Septuagint says Biblios Genosios, of 
Adam. These are the generations of Adam. Matthew 1 has the exact same wording as the Greek Septuagint. It says, Biblios genosios. So the first words in the New Testament, in no uncertain terms, show you that a new chapter is beginning in Israel's history. There were 11 generations of in the book of Genesis. This is the 12th and final act of Israel's history has begun with Jesus Christ. That is amazing to me that all of this Old Testament hope now converges on Jesus Christ. Abraham, Adam, the book of the generations of, or Abraham, David, the book of the generations of. So the hope and history of Israel has converged on Jesus Christ. He is the promised offspring of Abraham. He is the branch of David. He is the new chapter in Israel's history. It means that the hope and expectations of Israel and therefore the world has arrived in Jesus Christ. So that's who he is. He is the fulfillment of God's ancient promises to his chosen people. Now... What kind of king is Jesus? The names in the genealogy actually actually show you what kind of king he is. Now, many people have embarrassing family histories and they don't want to talk about it. They don't want to they don't want to talk about the past, their mother, their father, their grandparents. They'd rather cover it up and forget. King Herod was no different. King Herod, who we read about in the Bible, actually, because a, a, a genealogy was like a resume in the first century. It showed you who you were from, the honorability of your line, the purity of your line. And King Herod actually burned his genealogy and published a new genealogy after removing all of the embarrassing names from his genealogy. To show that he comes from a pure and honorable line. This is amazing that this was commonplace to change and publish your biology to show how pristine your line was. That you were in the line of kings. And so since Matthew is writing in this context of genealogies, it's not surprising to me that Matthew does not include some names in his genealogy. He skips some names. And and Matthew's aim is just to show that Jesus comes from a royal line and he is the fulfillment of prophecies. So it's not surprising to us that Matthew skips some names. What is surprising is not the names he skips, but the names which Matthew intentionally includes in Jesus's genealogy. Tamar is included. Now, if you remember the story of Tamar, Tamar dressed up as a prostitute in order to seduce her father-in-law into an incestuous affair. That was intentionally included in Jesus' biography. It could have easily been left out. Other names were left out, but this one intentionally included. Rahab. Rahab, the prostitute of Jericho. This is, this, this is my favorite one in verse 6. 
the last part of verse 6. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. <laughs> now, if he, he doesn't say Bathsheba. He says the wife of Uriah. And if you know the story of Uriah and David, David saw this man Uriah's wife bathing, was attracted to her, had an affair with her, and intentionally had her husband killed in battle so that he could marry Bathsheba and take Bathsheba as his own. I just think it's amazing that Matthew chooses not to say Bathsheba, but in almost to intentionally draw your mind to the sin of the king. He says, the wife of Uriah. So in a day and age, get this, where people's names are being excluded from genealogies in order to, to maintain the purity or honorability of this person in the eyes of the people, Christ's biography includes Gentiles, murderers, and prostitutes. C.S. Lewis said that God writes himself into an imperfect story. We are here because we believe we have an imperfect story. And Jesus does not require us to attain to some kind of standard before he enters in. He writes himself into your imperfect story. So being a disciple, therefore, is locating yourself within the company of this genealogy. You follow me? Locating intentionally. This is the first step to entrance in the kingdom of God. It is intentionally locating yourself within the company of murderers and prostitutes. And it begins with acknowledging that you are in need of the forgiveness that God offers you through Jesus Christ. Here's what Jesus said in Mark 2, 17. He says, after the Pharisees said, why do you eat with tax collectors and Gentiles and, and this riffraff? What does he say? Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So the sick without a physician are going to die. Sinners without forgiveness are going to be condemned. And so I came not to call, Jesus says, I came, please understand, he says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And so this means that if you do not identify yourself as sick unto death and a sinner in need of forgiveness, lest you be condemned, then he does not call you. Do you get that? If he does not call the righteous or those who think they're righteous, if he does not call, if you think you're healthy and you don't need forgiveness, then Christ doesn't call you. 
But if you do acknowledge yourself as sick unto death and in need of forgiveness, then he does. And he will not leave you where you are, but he will reconstitute and renovate and redeem that imperfect story that he has entered into. So if you want what Christ offers, that spiritual renovation and redemption, which was imperfect, you approach him through faith, casting your, casting your sins upon him, asking for forgiveness. In uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17, what does Paul say about those who are in Christ? If anyone is, is in Christ, what is he? New creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. New creation. The old passed away. The new has come. Jesus is a redeemer, which means he buys you out. He purchases you out of bondage and sin into a new kingdom. So your past, your past as a sinner, if Christ calls you, you will intentionally include yourself within this company of sinners. And you will cast yourself on the mercy of, of this king who redeems and renovates old and sinful and imperfect and horrible stories. So uh, there is, when you see, when we talk about the birth of Jesus Christ, when we talk about the visit of the wise men, I hope, I hope to show you who he is more. When we talk about the Sermon on the Mount, we will see what it means to live as God's people in his kingdom. But for now, understand that Jesus Christ in this biography is the culmination of God's people's expectation and therefore the world's hopes have come in Jesus Christ. And I exhort you to include yourself if you have not already and genuinely and sincerely to include yourself as a sinner who is sick in need of God's forgiveness and grace which he has offered you in Jesus Christ. Repent and believe for the time is near and the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then seek discipleship so that Christ by his power and his mercy and grace will renovate that old sinful story. And anything that becomes visible is a light in the kingdom of God. So if you expose your sin to Christ, light will shine on that sin and he will redeem you.